obviously a bit of a smaller group, which is totally okay. Um, did everyone get the, the handouts that were there on the? Uh, yes. I, I'll, I'll grab you guys some. You forgot glasses. No, you asked me I if I had I glasses. I, I thought I had them. This is the age oh, right now. Do you have glasses? <laughs> if we have to ask each other before I wear mine all the time, or else I'm All right, and would, uh, would someone mind opening us with a word of prayer? I will. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we can be together. Uh, word that we can study. I've been, we've been blessed with that for sure. So open our eyes that we can see the truth that's in your word. Open our ears and see how, what it means, what it means to us. Spirit, fill us with this blessing, but also fill us with the knowledge, the further knowledge of you. Direct our paths. Thank you for the good works that you've given us to do. That this evening our time together would be sweet and we'd be able to rejoice in the truth of your word. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm gonna pause this. I thought I'd start off by showing a quick video clip. So, uh, obviously, it's from the early 70s, so some uh, old cinematography, but apart from that, the, the way that they're reading Revelation is. Uh, a bit different than what we've been talking about these past few weeks. Um, has any has anyone seen that full movie? There are actually four movies that released uh, over several years, and so um, I haven't seen it myself, but I probably should at some point watch uh, watch that. Um, yeah, yeah, it'd be quite entertaining. Like there's gonna be a lot of screaming. Guns, watch out for big mustaches, and drummers are also a part of this whole deal. There's oh, yeah, the drummer. Guy. Yes, and so it um, they they take some of that the imagery in the book very literally and um, say that that is what's going to happen. And there's this this big push with uh, the rapture, and it's going to happen, and you need to make sure you're right with God now, and the, you know the time is coming, and um, that is how I think a lot of us have probably been exposed in some ways to the book of Revelation. I know that I, in uh, some forms, was, was taught that, was taught um, about the idea of a rapture coming and, you know, some people being left behind. And so here it's following the, uh, this, in, the entire movie is following this one woman who's left behind and kind of what she's doing. And um, there's going to be people with actual tattoos, the mark of the beast, all these things. Um, I thought it'd be good to show now because we get into these chapters. There's uh, a few of these things that come up, like the mark of the beast, and so we'll um, talk about that. Um, first, I, I thought it would be helpful just to revisit something that I've been trying to um, trying to bring out throughout our, our time together, and that's been reading Revelation um, symbolically and reading the the images and and the uh, the visions that John has and, and reading them in light of the Old Testament allusions and in light of the, uh, the symbolism that they're using. Uh, I think that's probably been something that, that is difficult for, uh, for some of us to, to grasp if, if we've grown up and we've 
been accustomed to reading it one way or um, seeing things really literally. And one thing I've been trying to stress is this isn't, uh, this isn't in any way denying God's word or, or saying that God's word is not true. It's simply acknowledging that God's word communicates truth in different ways and that it does that in genres. We're reading Revelation, which is uh, an apocalyptic book, and the way that it communicates truth is different than how other genres of scripture, like, uh, like a letter, one of Paul's letters, or um, some of the Psalms, or the book of Genesis, it's going to be different than how it communicates its truth. And so we need to be prepared for that. We need to acknowledge that. Um, and so I, one of the handouts I, I gave is it's a, it's a very condensed version of, um, of an article by um, G.K. Beale, who I've been quoting from quite a bit. Um, he's, he's done uh, some really good work on Revelation. Uh, he's, a, he's a solid evangelical um, scholar. Uh, this is a, a scholarly article that he wrote. And so I, what I did is I, um, I essentially copy and pasted uh, the first few pages of introduction. I changed a few things. If there was, was Greek or Hebrew, I would um, turn that into English letters. It's called transliterating, just so you could at least read it. Um, and then simplified a couple of things, and then uh, in the long, the larger section of the the article, I then uh, summarized and condensed and gave a few quotes from him just to give his kind of argument that he's that he's putting forth. And so um, you don't have to read it; you can if you if you want to uh, later this week. I, I think it will be helpful. I, I think it, uh, it it should be understandable. And his his point that he's making is um, that. One, that revela uh, revelation is symbolic and we need to then read it a certain way, but also that there's a purpose behind the symbolism and that it's, uh, it's John commu is communicating this book in these ways for a particular reason. And so uh, I thought we could walk through a little bit, bit of that, just some of the highlights, um, and especially just based off some questions that people have had, uh, good questions, especially last week there were some really good questions that I felt like um, I wanted to, to come back and touch on a little more. And so he starts on this first page by, by giving a, just a, some examples and, and talking about in our own lives that we need, sometimes we need something radical to get our attention, uh, whether that's to change a bad habit or to respond to something. And so he, he then goes on to show how revelation gets our attention about important things uh, through the use of symbolism in a way that is uh, is really gripping and is really um, is really it's just different than than if he was to communicate in a, in let's say a story or in a straight uh, discourse like like one of Paul's letters and so there's there's a purpose behind the symbolism and then he goes on to in this next section is revelation to be understood primarily uh, as literal or symbolic and uh, I pointed this out at the very beginning of our, our time in Revelation, but there's actually a, a, an important clue in the, first, the very first verse of the book that indicates to us the, the way in which the book is written and how uh, it is, it is uh, intended to be understood. And so uh, the, the very beginning of the, the book says, that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, or his servant John. Um, and the word communicated, 
different translations render it in different ways. They can say communicated or made known or signified or made clear. And the word is used in, in Greek um, with, with several different ranges of meaning. But the, the notion of uh, to symbolize or to signify or to communicate by symbols is a pretty common meaning of the word. And so in this respect, it's, it's pretty significant that John um, uses it. And especially when the, the word that is used here, there's a, a form of the word that is also a noun. And it's used in the New Testament um, to talk about the signs or symbols that Jesus did. So he healed a lame man in Mark 2, and it's called a, a sign. It's symbolic of his ability to forgive sin. Feeding the multitudes in John 6 is symbolic of his ability to give and nourish spiritual life. And so there's um, signs, which Jesus does, which reveal his identity and also are, stand for his authority and ability to do other things. And so, uh, so the word is used here. It's the same word. You're saying. Uh, it's... it's, this, it's Almost the same. They come from the same the okay. same word. Um, one is the verb here in, in Revelation, and then the noun is used in um, in these other places. And so, in Revelation one, it could mean made known or communicated, and thus just refer to kind of a general idea of communication and not um, a particular mode. And it sometimes mm -hmm. does. But Revelation one and I one one, and I tried to show this as well alludes to Daniel 2, 28 and 29, and also 45. And that confirms how, uh, how the word is being used here. The word in Daniel 2 is used to describe this symbolic vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. And so Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of uh, this giant statue of gold, of silver, of bronze, uh, and of iron and clay and then it's smashed by a giant rock that grows and fills the earth. Um, and Daniel tells the king that this vision was symbolic, that it was, uh, it was standing for something else, and that it was uh, symbolizing four kingdoms, which would then be smashed, uh, be, de be defeated by uh, the kingdom of God in the future. And so this use of, of the word to, to signify or to... Um, to communicate or to make known in Daniel 2 defines the use in Revelation 1.1 as referring to symbolic communication and not mere general conveyance of information. So what, uh, what Beale argues here, and I think he does a good job and he, he talks about it in his commentary, is that um, the way that John uses this in, in uh, Revelation 1.1 in connection with Daniel 2 is, is not just saying that God made it known, that he communicated it in some general way, but that he communicated it uh, through symbols, that he signified it or symbolized it. Uh, this also is then confirmed with how in Revelation 1.1 it says that, uh, that this is what God showed his servant. And so whenever uh, the word show is used throughout the book, it introduces a divine communication by a symbolic vision. And so this connection itself can make a strong case for the fact this isn't just any any type of communication. This is God specifically revealing and um, making thing known, making things known through symbols, through uh, through signs. And so, this then would, I think, lead us to to see from the get go that we are not to just read this like anything else, but that it is uh, it is the whole book is symbolic. It is uh, being 
signified through uh, through how how through these visions and what John is is recording. It is signifying or symbolizing something else. And so, a common uh, common dictum you hear in approaching Revelation is interpret everything literally until you can't, and then interpret it <laughs> symbolically. Um, and Beale says, no, we should flip that on its head. And our our programmatic statement about the book's precise mode of communication uh, here in one one should drive how we how we read the book. We should interpret symbolically unless we are forced to interpret literally. Better put, he says, the reader is to expect that the main means of divine revelation in this book is symbolic. From the get go, we should expect this, and uh, we then see. All this symbolism, uh, John occasionally will tell us what it stands for, like in chapter one, the seven stars or the seven angels, the seven lampstands or the seven churches. He tells us that, which is very nice of him. Uh, and then we can assume that when that symbol is used throughout the rest of the book, it's being used in a similar way. We saw that last week with chapter 11. Uh, the, the two witnesses are two lampstands. They are uh, the church. But unfortunately for us, most of the symbols aren't directly explained by, by the book. And so uh, the best way for us to understand them, really the, the, the majority, can be explained through the, their Old Testament context and seeing how it's used in the Old Testament uh, and then how John is using it in the book. And so Beale expands on this a bit, uh, and he, he says that the main mode of communication in Revelation is that of symbolism. Therefore, we should interpret Revelation primarily in a symbolic fashion and not primarily in a literal fashion, especially when we are interpreting the images in the visionary portion of the book, chapters 4 through 22. Um, this is on page 3. I'm going to read this, this paragraph because it's, it's really helpful. He says, why is symbolism the main mode of communication? Neither Paul nor the other New Testament writers use this as a main way of communicating. So why does John do so in Revelation? No doubt one reason is because the visions could not be expressed by words alone, because John saw things he could not put into words. Therefore, he puts them into pictures. In addition, the symbols show continuity with the Old Testament because many of the symbols come from there. In addition, the symbols are likely there in order to make the diligent reader of God's word dig deeper in order to get the richer treasures. If you do not work at understanding the book, you will have difficulty grasping its message. Um, and then what he, this is, these were the first few pages of his article, then what he goes on to, uh, to argue is for the, the purpose of this symbolism. And he, he says that to understand why there's so much symbolism, we need to understand that John is a prophet like the Old Testament prophets and like Jesus himself. And so to understand the way that John communicates as a prophet, we need to understand how the Old Testament prophets and how Jesus communicated their revelation from God. So he goes on, um, he goes on and, and this is a really, he gives so many examples which I tried to uh, condense and summarize here. And he, um, connects the way that uh, he connects the reason that the Old Testament prophets use symbolism with how Jesus uses symbolism in parables and then applies this to John's use of symbolism in the book, arguing that this will help us understand why John would communicate symbolically. Um, I'll skip around some of his examples, but he, he essentially comes to the, the bottom line and, and says that Symbol, the symbolism is used 
by the prophets Jesus and John so that Israel, for the Old Testament prophets, and us should perceive spiritual reality and not merely listen to abstractions about it. Uh, he points out the way, that, uh, the way that God commissioned Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And that he, he, he said, your, your, your preaching, your proclamations to them will actually harden their hearts. They will have ears, but they will not hear. They will have eyes, but they will not see. Jesus picks up on this, and he uses the phrase over and over. Uh, he who has ears, let him hear. Um, and he alludes to this. He, he quotes this passage from Isaiah 6 and Matthew 13 as he's speaking a parable. Uh, the point is that it's, uh, it's, it's a, these symbolic messages are, are really warnings, and, di- uh, and they're also then uh, calls to true believers to, to draw them out of spiritual laziness um, or just going along with the, the sinful status quo. And then they also harden the hearts of those who, who don't have ears to hear. Um, what they'll, he'll then go on to, to say as he applies this to Revelation is that when we, when we encounter the, the phrase in the messages to the churches in, in chapters 2 and 3, and every single, every single message says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this is, is again, um, important because that's almost exactly what Jesus would say, and this is Jesus speaking to the churches, and if, this, if Jesus and the prophets were, were doing this for a particular reason and, and communicating in parables, then it seems that John is doing the same thing. Um, he argues that the, the main point of this repeated phrase is so that um, revelation, the, the symbols, either sedate or shock, that they, uh, they sedate those who are who are hardened already, who don't uh, truly love the Lord, who are not committed to, uh, to following him, or they shock those who are, and they shock them to change and to repent of maybe the, the ways that they are, are currently in sin or the, uh, the ways in which they are just going along with things. And so the, the symbols in Revelation, they either sedate or shock. He says, people are to look at the picture and then apply it to their lives. This can cause us to look at the truth and at reality in a different way so that we can be shocked back into the reality of our faith. God's people too often do not want to hear the truth, and if it is presented straightforwardly to us to convict us of sin, we will not accept the fact of our sin. We will rationalize it away. And so he then uh, goes on and and starts uh, applying this to different areas that, that maybe we are uh, complacent or that we are hardened. He says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John is saying to us that revelation symbols either sedate or shock us back into the reality of our relationship with God. So is there a sinful area in our lives that we do not think is really that bad? Will we be sedated or shocked into the reality of what our relationship with God demands us to do in this situation? then concludes that uh, the end of this article that the reason John uses symbols for the faithful is so that we would actually see and perceive spiritual reality and not merely listen to abstractions about it and accordingly be shocked concerning those sins which we have become uh, anesthetized to. So 
he then uh, concludes with some actually helpful anecdotes and illustrations from his own life, but um, he points out a picture is worth a, a thousand words. We've all heard that before, and um, this seems to be one of the reasons that, that God communicates to us through pictures and revelation. He is able to communicate rich things through these symbols that maybe could not be communicated in any other way. It's the same for us in our spiritual lives with this uh, the fact that a picture is worth a thousand words. He says, sometimes we get so accustomed to and comfortable with sinful situations that we need radical pictures presented to us so that we can perceive the true gravity of our, spiritual, our spiritually destitute condition. By the way, not just the book of Revelation, but God's word in general, even in the non-symbolic sections, has this function of helping us to perceive reality from God's viewpoints and not merely our own symbolic portions of God's word, uh, uh, our own viewpoint. Symbolic portions of God's word, however, do this in a very concrete, pictorial manner. Um, he goes on, and I won't, I won't keep reading it, but uh, he, he then, his very last line is, is, is helpful. He says, Revelation promises great blessing to those who hear and obey its message. Blessed is he who reads and who, those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it. The time is near, Revelation 1.3 says. So may God give us grace so that if we have hear, ears, we will hear what his symbols are saying to us. Um, so again, you can, you can read through this. I, I think it, uh, it should, be, should be understandable for you, and it's, um, it, it gives a helpful perspective on, on why John would communicate in this way. Um, in the very, very back, I also included uh, a couple of quotes, one from... Beale's commentary outside of this, outside of this um, article, and then another one from from Matthew Emerson, whose book I recommended. Um, I won't read the Beale one, but I'll read the one from Emerson. He says, "To interpret Revelation, we need to engage it as John wrote it, figuratively and symbolically. Recognizing John's use of symbols and images does not negate the book's truthfulness. Far from it." Instead, Revelation describes reality using word pictures, and so our job as readers is to reorient our imaginations, our beliefs about the world and its powers, through understanding and appropriating John's vision in our own day. Again, the, this, this way of looking at the book, of seeing these things as symbolic, of communicating through imagery, doesn't gut the book of its, its meaning. It actually, I think... Um, keeps the meaning in, in the way that the author intended it to be. Um, someone asked last week, it was a, a good question, I was pointing out um, the, the connection between the seven, the seven seals and bowls and, um, and trumpets and how there's this, this almost decreation of creation. We have Genesis 1 through 2 which walks us through God's created order and then especially in the trump, uh, trumpets there's this almost undoing of creation. And, and someone asked, uh, well, how can you be saying that this undoing of creation is, is symbolic and it's not literal when Genesis 1 through 3 was literal and, and God actually created things that you can physically see and touch? Um, why would there be that connection? And it's a really good question and um, it took me a, a week to think about it and um, and and just reflect on that. And uh, I think one, one of the things we need to remember is um, that there are different, different genres. 
Genesis is, is a narrative, it's a story, it's a historical narrative. Um, it's recording something that, that happened and it's, uh, the author is, is telling us what happened and he's including the details he wants to include, but it's a given that what he's saying happened and that it's true and, uh, and that these things took place. And then with Revelation, it's not a historical narrative. It's uh, an apocalyptic book. It's a prophecy. And so even if John is, John, what I was pointing out, is, um, is drawing on some of these themes and images, because we have different genres, he doesn't have to be using it in the same exact way or trying to say the exact same thing. Uh, the, the genres where we do find overlap, and when I point out, oh yeah, look at this connection with Isaiah or Daniel, there is this connection, especially with um, apocalyptic literature and prof uh, prophetic literature, and that's why a lot of the images that he draws from Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and the other prophets, he can just take and place in his own work and use them maybe in a different way, but they can stay very similar because there's that connection with genre. With Genesis, it's, it's not the same, and that's one of the things I was trying to convey is that um, he's picking up on creation, a theme in scripture, and something from literally the first page of the Bible that happens and that is important, um, but he's, he's now putting it through the lens of uh, apocalyptic genre, which means he's going to communicate it differently and communicate it um, for different purposes. So um, looking back, that's how I, would, how I would try and answer that question now, and I think that, that Beale also um, is helpful in seeing then the purpose of the symbols and, and the reason that it would uh, it would be communicated this way and what it, it calls for us to respond to. So, um, so any questions there then before we before we move into the text for this week? Hopefully that was just a helpful. Um, well, I think re-emphasizing that, that genre of um, symbolism can lend without careful study, can lend itself to things like movies that are off yeah. <laughs> hmm? But at the same time, what gives a, me, I mean, I agree with you, what gives me, uh, gives us <clears throat> clear insight that this is still the inspired word of God is that the extent of the allusions yes. and references mm -hmm. to the yes. Old Testament, I knew there were some, but I'm learning Thick. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. With them. And then the context. So the so the message, without referencing the Old Testament, it becomes more confusing than it mm -hmm. needs to be. But in referencing the Old Testament, it's still hard, but it does clear it up, and it, you can get come to a, a clear un, a clear understanding. Yeah, and I think I think part of the reason that we, uh, we have we struggle so much with Revelation is we just don't know our Old Testaments yeah. well enough. Um, and no, I, I'm, I'm guilty as well and, and I find that each time I read through scripture though, and I read through the Old Testament and then I come back to Revelation it makes a little bit more sense um, and so that's I, I think part of part of the reason we if we don't see the connection there especially with these symbols and we try and say oh well this this Thing, it's talking about this modern day, you know, helicopter or whatever. Well, now it's it's actually clearly drawn from how the Old Testament is using it. Um, 
But it makes so. it more beautiful all at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the unity of God's word too, which yeah. is crazy. I remember this prof that I have who's... Um, Prophet or professor? Prof, professor. <laughs> um, this professor, and he... He like color codes his Bible whenever the New Testament uses the Old Testament, right? So it's just, and then by the time he showed Revelation one time, and it was just like, right? Because we have this list every week that Matt's helping create for us. It's got all these allusions and where, and, and like, so it was basically like orange or something, the whole thing, because it's all from the Old Testament. And I remember I foolishly <laughs> asked in front of everybody <laughs> where I might be able to get a list like that <laughs> so that I could start to see those things in my Bible. And he just did one of those moments where he went like, yeah, and he said, and just looked at me and he said, read your Bible. <laughs> and it's just true though, like that's the only way that, but I think the writers of scripture wrote what they wrote. I mean, God inspired them a way that they expected that we knew, that we've read, that we've un that we've thought about these things, so that when John does use, you know, him who has ears to hear, let him hear, it does something in us because we know what that means. Something super yeah. important is being told us. Yeah, and another interesting point there, which I mean, could could go into a, a lot of detail about this, but um, the really the the school of of, of interpretation that started pushing this very hyper-literal view um, th that kind of led to some of the things we saw in that, that trailer clip uh, comes from a, an entire really theological, um, a theological view that places a strong distinction and divide between the Old and New Testament, um, essentially making the Old Testament not relevant for Christians, and so that you can see then how that could arise to uh, that could uh, lead uh, lead to a view like that arising um, because there's such a strong division between the Old and New Testament. Um, so, how often did Jesus say you've read or you've heard? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, let's let's start in with with Revelation 12. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question, and that's I mean that's something that's that's difficult for um, for for people who yeah that when there's a bunch of people saying different things, what do you what do you do? Um, one thing is those differences in opinions. A lot of them are are going to be on smaller, minor details. They wouldn't be necessarily on on larger doctrines, especially if you're reading. You know, you're reading something like your ESV Study Bible. They're all going to be be on the same page in terms of uh, central doctrines and, and their overall theological views. Um, the way that they might read a certain verse may differ. Um, so that's one thing that I would say, just to encourage you. It's not that there's uh, you know th there's not just five million different views on every certain thing, and and if you take one view, you're going to have an entire different theology than someone else. Um, 
ultimately, the, I mean, the, the test has to be how, how well does that interpretation um, unlock the context of the, uh, the book and accord with uh, the, the context um, on a micro level of the verse and the paragraph and the chapter and the book, but also with all of God's word. Um, so yeah, it can be it can be daunting when you if you're using a study Bible and, and there's different views. I think that um, yeah, the best the best thing will just be to what what makes the most sense in the context. And there's things that there's interpretive decisions that um, that are a lot more minor that depend on a word or two. And I, I think that yeah, it's it's difficult when when you when you see that but also again even those maybe there's a decision about how to translate a word and one person translates it this way and another person translates it this way they might not even have a real different view on the whole of the verse or the book or or whatever's going on and so i i, I think the the thing i would would also say is to look for the the unity in the different options that there are and you know, if someone's just saying one thing that's completely opposite, then okay, that might there might be an important decision to make. But if, if there's just differences in emphasis or or nuance, then um, then yeah, I think what whatever whatever makes most sense in the context. And that's I mean, it's it's hard. That's like a hard answer. But um, I don't. Gary, would you add anything anything there? Uh, just um, ask Matt. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. <laughs> well, like the point Diana brought up last week, whether the Christians are going to the tribulation uh-huh. or not, that's, that's a big difference. Yeah, yeah, that, that would be a, a big difference, and um, and there certainly are, are a few different views on that. Um, yeah. I think one of the things that's really helpful is, is um, for in terms of our revelation, is Ezekiel is probably the book of, of any book in the Bible that has most of revelation. Uh, Picking up on Ezekiel, and in this, you're reading stuff like this. You're reading stuff like their their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. Each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. Yeah. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like, and he goes on and on like like he's on a drug trip or something. <laughs> and then uh, he also says. Uh, first time here you see it. Uh, Thus says the Lord, he who, he who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refu- refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. And he, he continues to tell Ezekiel that this is a hard heart people, they're not going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like the same thing going on in Revelation. People are not going to listen, so uh, give them this message and help them. Uh, those who are will hear, but those who are not, people are very hard and hard. They're not going to, they're not going to grasp it. And here's he, he's telling them all these crazy things. I mean, you read it's just, it's just so mind blowing the stuff that he sees. Mm-hmm. But obviously, he was like John. He was seeing some things that in his, in these visions that he could only put in these words. And, and he, what he saw, he wrote. But they, you know, there's nothing that tells us exactly what 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 was he, what did all this mean. Mm-hmm. But it was meant to, uh, like you said, uh, wake up the people who are lazy and, and uh, hardened further to those who are hardened and, and many people never listened to him and, and uh, they, the, the destruction came in his day so 
And what I, what I would say to uh, the, the example of the, um, the rapture and tribulation is, you're right, that is a, that is a, a, bigger, a bigger topic. Um, my answer to what I said uh, of context really still covers that because the, the issue is, because um, people's opinions on that, they're hopefully they're tethered to the interpretation of verses and passages and they're trying to support it from scripture it's not just some idea that they have that oh this would be a good way to do things so this is how it should be but um the the issue then is how they're interpreting individual verses um so part of reading something in context is reading it in light of the entirety of scripture and so if you're saying something means one thing but either that's not not taught anywhere else in scripture or it's uh, it's contradicted somewhere else in scripture or there's other passages in scripture that seem to be a lot clearer um, you need to take account for that and so um, the issue with that with that particular topic is is how you interpret um, passages like uh, revelation 20 and and um, and first uh, first Thessalonians 4 and so there's some bigger picture um, connections that people are making and what I would say is that there's a lot of arguments and interpretations that people offer in support of saying oh yeah there's going to be this um, referred to as a pre-tribulation rapture that before kind of the final tribulation days the church will be raptured up um, and people can find that in a whole bunch of verses in the Old Testament and the New. And if you look at, I think, the verse in context, and its entire context, context more than just the verse, um, it really starts to, starts to shake under the weight of the cumulative teaching of the New Testament and also the greater context of some of those individual verses. So we'll, we'll talk further about that when we get to um, Revelation 20, but the big thing will, is going to always have to be continuity with, with Scripture because this is um, God's Word, which is made up of individual books. Um, it is also a larger category of it's all God's divinely inspired Word. And as we've seen with these allusions, there's, there's a continuity, and there's a continuity in all of Scripture um, in, in not only the, the story and the plot line, but in its teaching. Um, we believe that God's word doesn't contradict itself, and that that it is uh, it is always consistent. And so, um, if you're offering an interpretation of something, it needs to be consistent with with all other scripture. I think, Linda, two things that we talked about in, in women's Bible study too, like that um, one of the ways that we learn to do that is also just every time there is a cited reference, like a. a passage that is quoted from somewhere else in the Bible that we go back and we read that. Um, like various cross-references are the tricky ones because they might just pick up on a theme or whatever and that's more random based on whoever, whatever the version of the Bible is that we're reading. But um, but whenever there is a cited verse that we go back and see where it's cited from and what it's talking about, which is why that writer used it and it helps us to understand what they're saying. And so that's super important, I think. And then also, um, I think this discussion is also the important place where we then bounce those things off of what we see that we're understanding. That's why studying our Bible together is really important too because we get to ask those questions. And I think sometimes we find that we are focused on something that the text isn't actually, when we look at the context like Matt's talking about, it's not something the text is actually even 
communicating. It's just something that we're we're bringing to it and asking the question about, and yeah. we're missing maybe the main point of the text itself. And also, just in terms of major <laughs> themes in scripture, there's more confusion over end times things than any, any other mm -hmm. subject because just the challenges of Revelation in particular to to come to sure answers, and we haven't been there. So uh, other things we have more agreement on, but but when you get to the issue of eschatology and the last things, you'll have some more disagreements there. Yeah, which but, is a reason we should hold things a bit loosely. And um, there's, yeah. you know, unfortunately, a lot of people who are are just unwilling to budge on their view of these things, and yet they, you know, they don't maybe care about differences in opinion and things that I would say matter matter more. Uh, and so, so holding holding things and and really holding holding any of our interpretations um, in, in, with an open hand. I mean, there's things that we all agree on and that are, are, are central to the Christian faith um, that, that we, you know, we believe the scripture clearly teaches, but for all of scripture, um, even just understanding our interpretation, we, we usually refer to, oh, that's a right interpretation or that's a wrong interpretation. Um, which, I mean, there is actual objective truth and right and wrong but in our own understanding of things we really should think more in terms of plausible versus implausible and and is our is our interpretation that we're saying how is it accounting for all these different features of the text and is it therefore a more plausible interpretation than what someone else is is saying if there is a difference um, studying in community is important for most of church history, they didn't have the access to uh, to the Bible that we do today, and to everyone having their own Bible. Um, for the most part, you would you could go to uh, to church on Sunday, and that would that would be where you would hear Scripture read. Or uh, there were fewer copies, and so you had to gather in groups. And um, it's an amazing blessing and privilege and responsibility that we each have. We can carry around on our phones so many different versions and and translations. Um, but it's also a curse in some ways because of the individualism of our our society that we you know we, we tend to do things in isolation and we should certainly be reading scripture on our own but individuals uh, that that tends to be the um, the origin of of bad interpretations when it's just a very individual thing and it's um, and they don't have the checks and balances of of everyone else around them so that's another another important thing yeah, it's 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 difficult, um, and reading God's word takes work, um, especially in a book like like Revelation. So, yeah, good question. Hopefully that was hopefully that was in some way helpful. Um, all right, well let's uh, let's dive into to chapter twelve. Um, hopefully you guys were able to read uh, twelve through fourteen. Um, Starting, what what were things for those of you who were able to read it? What were things that stood out? Maybe themes or um, important images or uh, the overall message that you saw. What what stood out to you here in in these chapters? Is there, is there anything that that uh, you noticed theme wise or? Oh, well, one of the things was conquer and conquer. Yeah. Um, so they had conquer come up twice yeah. in that the... Um, in chapter 14 and... Yeah, uh, I wrote the verses down here somewhere. But um, first conquer is like we conquer through the blood of Christ, right? Yep, yep. And then the second conquer is um, 
actually the beast conquers um, followers of God, but it's talking about a physical death. Um, so it's the same thing, but spiritual obviously is the more important. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, because we have a, a lot of text to go through, I want to focus on um, some more big picture things, um, but we can certainly talk about uh, details as well. Um, chapter 12, we, so now we, we've been going through, uh, through these different um, visions of judgment. We had first the seven seals, and then the seven trumpets, uh, and then now there's kind of this, this break, and chapters 12 through 14, pause, and then we get back uh, in chapter 15 to the bowls, the final series of seven judgments. Um, 12 through 14, there's this, there's this interesting break. And John is still, it's still apocalyptic and prophetic. Um, yet there's also a sense in which these, these chapters are, uh, are a narrative in which they're a story. And what we find, especially in chapter 12, is uh, that it really... The, the war that we find here between the lamb and the dragon is the story of all of scripture. It's something that begins in uh, Genesis 3 with the, the serpent and uh, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. Um, and there's this conflict all throughout scripture, which then we, we continue here in Revelation here and then in chapter 19 and 20 seems to resolve and tie up the story. And so that's one way in which Revelation is a nice uh, and, and um, a fitting end to the, the Bible. And so here John seeks to summarize, symbolize, and demonstrate the culmination of that storyline. The narrative of scripture, uh, the, the story of the, the battle between the, the lamb and the dragon or of uh, the serpent versus God, um, is summarized and completed by the story in Revelation. So as we get to chapter 12, we, we get this, um, this new vision, a great sign. And uh, it's interesting to note that word sign is that same word that I pointed out when we very first, uh, when we very first got here. Um, John, uh, John writes in 1.1 that this is a revelation that God made known or that God uh, symbolized, signified, communicated through symbols is what I was, was saying. Um, and here is now the, the noun form of that, which I mentioned was connected to the, the signs Jesus did. So here is uh, a sign, um, something communicated symbolically to John. Um, and we get this, we get this image of a, of a woman clothed with the sun, and she is um, then she is then tormented or per, uh, pursued by the dragon as she. Um, as she gives birth, and uh, here we have this this image, this story of the uh, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus. Um, at first glance, we might think that that the woman is Mary because Mary gave birth to to Jesus. Um, I think when we when we look again at the the way that this symbol is used, even in this passage, but also in uh, the way that it's used throughout the Bible can come to a different understanding of, of really the, the woman being um, symbolic of the people of God. They're God's people. Um, God's people as his bride is, is something that is, uh, it's a metaphor made throughout all of scripture and we see it here um, in, in Revelation 21 as well. Um, and also then with the way that it's, it's used 
a few verses later, it, it can't be Mary. It has to be um, God's, God's people. Even verse 2 as well, she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Uh, that, that the metaphor of, of birth pains and um, this agony while giving birth is used several times in, in the Old Testament. I marked down some of the allusions there for you, but uh, Isaiah 26 and 66, Micah 4, uh, as there is this suffering in labor pains before the Messiah comes, before uh, before this this deliverance and salvation. And so especially then, again, when we look at verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness in which she has been nourished for uh, 1260 days, I think it may, will make more sense for us to see this as uh, the people of God, and there's also then another connection with um, what we'll see in verse 17. Um, does that does that make sense to everyone? Even seeing how those the the way that the Old Testament prepares us to see uh, this as as God's people, and so uh, then another sign appears. It's a great red dragon, seven heads and ten horns, and seven uh, seven crowns on those heads. Uh, horns signify strength and the, the crowns, his authority. Um, this seems to be a clear allusion to Daniel 7. And there we have uh, a beast that arises and has both horns and uh, crowns. And there the, um, the, the horns and the, the crowns, they stand for kings. They're, they're actual kings. And this is also what we read in, in Revelation 17, 12 through 14. And so what this seems to be um, showing us is the red dragon, who we know is Satan. He is, um, he is identified here and then in uh, the following verses, like in, in uh, verse 9. He, he manifests himself through human rulers, through kings. It's a part of his, his satanic um, strategy, his... Uh, the way in which he, um, he he seeks to cause mayhem on this earth. Uh, and it's again clear from the allusion to Daniel. And so his tail in verse 4 sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to earth. Um, here's another, another uh, reason why we need to then be familiar with the Old Testament uh, allusion it's drawing from here. It's again drawing from Daniel uh, this time, Daniel chapter eight, when which uh, when we have the um, the beast, uh, the final beast that would sweep down stars from heaven and cast them to earth, and we learn in Daniel twelve and in Daniel eight twenty Daniel twelve three and Daniel eight twenty four that the stars being cast down are God's people, they're the holy ones. So a lot of people see this verse as. Um, kind of the, the original fall of Satan and him taking, you know, he took a third of angels with him, but that's actually not what we have going on here when we read it in connection with the, the Old Testament illusion it's making, that the stars are God's people, and this is talking about his persecution of God's people. They're the stars of heaven because of their dwelling in heaven. Um, we read several times in these chapters about uh, the people of God being identified as uh, those who dwell in heaven, we especially see that in uh, in thirteen six, um, the the beast blasphemes God's name and His dwelling, 
that is those who dwell in heaven. God's dwelling is identified with those who dwell in heaven, those who dwell in heaven, or God's people. And so, um, so the stars of heaven are cast down to the earth. God's people are persecuted. This then gives us nice parallelism with then the dragon standing before the woman about to give birth so that, she, uh, that he might um, devour the child when it's born. God, uh, we have God's people and the Messiah both being persecuted by Satan. Satan, um, as I mentioned, he, he manifests himself through human rulers. Um, so this image of the, the, the dragon devouring uh, the child when it's born. Um, again, if this is, this is literal, this is just kind of crazy, but we, we understand that uh, the one being birthed is the Messiah. Um, and so that connection again to human kings, it's interesting to note in Matthew 2 that, um, that Herod, seeks to kill Jesus right as he is born. Um, and so we have this demonic, um, the de- demonic intent of, of Herod who is seeking to destroy Jesus when he's born. And, and this is then symbolically, I think, represented by the dragon standing before the woman to, to snatch him up when, um, when she gives birth. But she does give birth in in verse 5 to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And this is uh, where it becomes clear this is talking about Jesus because the allusion is to Psalm 2 um, when when Jesus, uh, God's God's anointed one, the Messiah, rules with a rod of iron. Uh, We see this this same allusion to Psalm 2 earlier in the book in the address to the seven churches. in chapter 1 and then also in chapter 19 so this is a very common um, common allusion and and image for the messianic king is that he would rule the nations with a rod of iron but her child was caught up to God and to his throne so the child's born he's the one who is to rule and he's caught up to God and his throne uh, being caught up to God and to his throne it's referring to his resurrection and his ascension he is caught up to God. That same, the same word is used elsewhere to refer to the resurre- resurrection of, of Christ um, and to his throne. Throne is, is signifying his authority. Jesus, upon his resurrection, sat down at the right hand of God and was granted authority. We've seen that um, already in Revelation and throughout the New Testament. And so um, Satan's evil intent was thwarted and he, uh, the Messiah was brought back to life uh, ascended to the throne, he reigns. And this is where we have the woman fleeing into the wilderness. The wilderness is very, uh, it's a very, um, it's a very loaded term in scripture. We think immediately of, um, of the, the Israelites and their wanderings in the wilderness of Jesus as he, um, after he's baptized, brought into the wilderness to face temptation. And so it's a place of um, uh, testing but also, uh, it's, there's a place prepared by God where she is nourished, where uh, God's people are nourished. And so there's protection um, here even in, in the hardships. And so the woman fleeing, again, I don't think it's just Mary. It has to be God's people. And we will see that later in, in verse 17 um, when it, it clarifies this further. But are, are there any questions there so far? Are we tracking with the... The symbolism and the um, the the story here. Uh, and the uh, God's people. If we see these as the the woman as God's people, 
uh, it is nourished in the wilderness for 1,260 days. I mentioned this last week in, when we encountered this uh, same period of time in chapter 11, verse 2. Um, this isn't a literal 1,260 days. It's uh, actually referring back to Daniel's use of the phrase in uh, Daniel 7 and in Daniel 12, um, which was focusing on the future eschatological um, period of, of trial and in Revelation, John shows that after the resurrection, this period uh, was inaugurated, and there we are now in this period of, of tribulation. We are now in the three and a half years, in the 1260 days, and so uh, the, the, the woman in the wilderness is being nourished by God throughout the church age. The churches, the, the people of God are being, um, being nourished by God. Then we go into this, this next section here in, in verse 7. And it gives us now a, a new perspective, this cosmic heavenly perspective of Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, um, who then fought back. Michael um, is mentioned in Daniel as well. He, he's, him and his angels, they're uh, representing uh, in battle God's people. They're fighting for them and possibly with them. Uh, the, the dragon is defeated and it says there is no longer any place for them in heaven. Um, the dragon and his angels. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Um, this throwing down, it, 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 again, it's probably not a reference to <coughs> Satan's original fall, but to what happened because of the, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Right. In light of uh, the resurrection, uh, when the child was caught up to God and to his throne, um, Satan now no longer had any, any authority in heaven. He no longer had any, um, any, any reason to be there. He, he had no longer any, um, any hold over, over believers because... We see this throughout Scripture, for instance, in Job 1 and Zechariah 3, that Satan, even as it's described in, in verse 9, he is the, the accuser, the deceiver, the slanderer, is what a devil and Satan they mean, um, the, the accuser and the slanderer. Um, and what Satan would do is stand before God and slander and accuse his people um, because of sin or uh, for whatever reason, because of the death of Christ and his resurrection, uh, there's, there's, no any, um, there, there's no longer any use, uh, and no, no longer any, any way for Satan to accuse believers before God because they are, they are washed with the blood of the Lamb. Right? And so Romans 8, 8, 1 says that there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Uh, Satan can't accuse us before God because we are... We are Saved, we are bought by the blood of the Lamb. The resurrection, uh, the ascension, kick uh, the the dragon out of heaven. He no longer has any any um, any entrance there. He doesn't have um, access, but he does. He does, and he is thrown down to the earth. And now here is where um, he he then seeks to cause um, mayhem and and harm. In verse ten, we have. 
the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down. The authority of his Christ, again, this, the, accuser was our, the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down. This, the reason this happened is because of the, uh, the work of Christ. And as Joel mentioned earlier with, with conquered, uh, we have, they have conquered, God's people have conquered by the blood of the lamb. They conquered because he was thrown down. Um, because he was thrown down, because Jesus died and rose again and ascended, which led to his being thrown down, they conquered through the blood of the lamb. It is because of what Jesus did that they were able to conquer uh, and then we have this, this final verse in, in verse 12, which calls the, the heavens to rejoice because Satan is no longer there, but the earth and the sea, woe to them because now Satan is angry, he is stirred up, and he um, is seeking to, to cause harm upon earth. He has no place in heaven, uh, but desires to harm God's people on earth. Are there any, any questions or anything that, that really stood out to you guys here in these First couple of uh, sections. It's almost like like all of God's plan here with Jesus and his death and resurrection just all of a sudden not just, all, just happened, right? That was God's plan. But then all of a sudden it's like Satan and all the angelic forces go, Oh, that's how it turns out, you know? That's what happens. And so he's like Dang it, my accused, accusations don't work anymore because they've been covered by the blood of the Lamb. Well, I'm going to go mess with them now. Yeah. I'm just going to make their lives miserable and try to deceive people from here on out. Yeah. So it's just like there's this whole um, like realization of Satan. Like, I, my accusations mean nothing anymore. That's why so many prophets refer to our citizenship being heaven. Right, right. We're just passing through here. Yeah. And that's why... Uh, I mentioned a little while ago that several times in these chapters, uh, God's people are seen as the citizens of heaven, even as they, they still dwell on the earth. Um, and so then we get this other, other, other view of now the dragon's thrown down to earth, and so he begins to persecute God's people. His goal now is to harass them and to, uh, to persecute them, to cause them harm. But, in verse 14, um, God grants them protection and he nourishes them, as we saw in verse 6, uh, imagery of the, the wings of the eagle, God in, in, uh, in Exodus 19 says that he bore his people out on eagle's wings. Um, I talked about last week the, the new Exodus imagery that we have in, in Revelation. And again, this is, we have the mention of uh, time, times, and half a time. A time is a year, uh, times is two years, half a time is half a year, it's three and a half years which is equivalent to 1,260 days. This is all the same period of time, 42 months. And so it's the, the same period of time here. It's the church age. Uh, she is to be nourished for this period of time over uh, the course of the church age until uh, Jesus returns to, to finally um, rescue and deliver his people. And even in the midst of this attempted persecution by the serpent or the dragon, um, God protects his people. The earth came to the help of the woman, it says, uh, and the dragon is furious by this, and he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring to those who, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And so um, the, the woman, and, and this might seem to 
contradict what I said earlier, if the woman is standing for the, the people of God, then how can, okay, the rest of her offspring, that's clearly the people of God. I think what um, John is doing is the woman is the collective church and the offspring are the individuals. It's interesting, John actually does the same exact thing um, if we hold that the author of Revelation is the same author of uh, the epistles of John, and I think that they are. In Second John, he writes to the elect lady and to her children. The elect lady is the church. Her children are the individual Christians of the church. And so here, um, the, the, the woman is the church, and the offspring are the individual believers, those who keep the commandments of God. And now we, we move into chapter 13, and this is really interesting, and I, I didn't get a chance to kind of chart this out, but what we find in these chapters, uh, there's, there, there's an unholy trinity. We have uh, the dragon who mocks and who, um, who, who line, tries to line up with, uh, with the father. Then we have this first beast who, who mocks and who um, has these connections to the sun, and then we get the, the second beast, or who also is referred to as the false prophet, who um, mocks and who is an is a unholy, a false version of the spirit. And so I'll mention some of those things, and then as we go through the text, we'll see them. But um, for instance, the, the dragon gives life and authority to the first beast here, just as the father grants life and authority to the son in his resurrection and ascension. Um, the father is the ruler of all kingdoms of earth and of heaven. Uh, the dragon is the ruler of rebellious evil kingdoms, as we see from the, the crowns and from um, the, the horns. The sun, here, as we get into chapter 13, um, the sun is the image of the father, right? The beast is the image of the dragon, as we see in these uh, in these verses um, it's interesting to, to see too the connection with okay the, the the dragon had ten horns and seven heads with seven crowns on them um, and now so too the beast does and just as the the father gave strength and authority and power to the son now we have the unholy father, the dragon, giving authority and power to the beast in the same way that the father gave authority to the son. Um, the, there's blasphemous, blasphemous names, it says, on its head. In chapter 19, we have Christ who has the name of God written on his, on his forehead, uh, the, the true God, the true Christ. Um, and then in 1912 as well, Christ has many diadems. Uh, Christ rules over God's people. The beast rules over God's enemies. As we see in this, this chapter, he rules over um, the, those who, who worship the dragon. The beast is made up of four different animal images which mock Christ's reign over creation. Uh, the four beasts that we saw in chapters 4 and 5 the four heavenly beings, rather. Uh, the beast is given a throne and authority in 13.2, just like Christ is given a throne and authority. In 17.11, uh, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, the, uh, this beast is called the one who was and is not. And it mocks the one who was and is and who is to come. Um, 
In 13.3, the, one of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed. Christ died of a mortal wound, um, but was raised back to life. Here, the, uh, the beast mocks the resurrection of Christ through the healing of his mortal wound. And then he sends out the second beast, uh, or the false prophet, as we'll see in, uh, starting in verse 11, just as Christ sends out the spirit. There's a few more connections that we'll talk about. And then as we get to the second beast, Christ was raised by the spirit, uh, by the power of the spirit. The first beast here and its mortal wound, it was, uh, was healed. It was raised or resurrected, so to speak, by, uh, by the, um, the false prophet, by the beast, as we see in, uh, in verse 13. Oh, no, I put the wrong, uh, sorry, verse, uh, put the wrong verse there. Um, the the false, false prophet or the second beast also performs these signs and miracles, performs um, these miracles that there's even this connection to, uh, to, for instance, Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Um, and it, it mocks and mimics these the, the power of the Holy Spirit who, who accomplishes these, these miracles. Um, another thing is we, we talk about the, the we've talked about the, uh, the mark of the beast, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, here we have the, the false prophet who marks God's enemies with, uh, with, with, a, uh, with a symbol on the forehead or on, um, on the, the hand. Um, the Spirit seals believers. We saw that in 7.1, and, and it's also taught in Ephesians 1 and 4. Um, so they both seal. The second uh, beast is the false prophet and the Spirit, uh, and it points to the, the false son, the false, uh, false Christ, the first beast. As we see, let's see, in verse 15 of chapter uh, 13, so, oh, out of order, there we go. Verse 15, uh, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And so uh, the spirit's role is to glorify the sun and bring attention to the sun and uh, put a spotlight on the sun. Here, that's what the second beast does with the first um, additionally, we have um, in that same verse, in, in verse 15, this, the spirit, that's, this is where the, uh, the, the, it gives breath to the image of the beast, um, just as the, the spirit, the true spirit is the breath of God that gives life and that resurrected uh, the son. So there's this unholy trinity of sorts as we, as we see here. And uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot more that could be, could be said. I think that um, we should note with the first beast, again, con connecting it to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, the beast, it, here it's kind of a hodgepodge of Daniel's four beasts. And it, it stands as this uh, a combination of all of them. And in Daniel 7, those represented four empires, four kingdoms. Uh, John, 
probably has in mind uh, the Roman Empire as this, this beast, and, but, but it's not that the beast is restricted only to Rome. It applies to every manifestation of evil in all um, governments throughout history and up until the, the final conflict. The beast, as we saw Satan working through kings and through human authorities, the beast is, um, is a, a, a kingdom or is any kingdom that does not, um, that, that bows its knee to Satan and that is, is against God and against his people. And so here, uh, as we see in, in verse 2, its authority derives from Satan, it's demonic. Um, this isn't just a, an individual, this isn't just one antichrist or one uh, particular person or even one particular kingdom. As we'll see in chapters 17 and 18, Babylon stands as not the literal city of Babylon, but as any, uh, any city, any nation that is, uh, that is against God, that is, is, is completely consumed by sin. And so here, the, uh, the kingdom can be any kingdom, can be any nation that, um, that is, is against God and is against his, his Christ and this beast is, is given uh, a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It uh, exercises authority for 42 months. Again, the same period of the church age. There's Over the church age, there are these evil empires which, um, which are empowered by Satan and which are against God and his people. Uh, it's also interesting when we, when we look at verse 8, it's given authority um, over all who dwell on, on the earth, and that they will all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Uh, those who dwell on the earth, it's kind of a technical term for unbelievers in Revelation. If you're an earth dweller, you're, uh, you're an unbeliever, just as we talked about if you're a heaven dweller, you're, uh, you are a believer. Those who, who will worship it, those who are unbelievers, are actually those whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So this is all based on whether or not before the foundation of the world their name was written in the book, uh, the lamb's book of life. And this is, um, this is teaching God's election of people before the foundations of the world um, or his non-election of people. And then there's a call in verse 9 to, uh, this is the only time it's repeated throughout the book outside of the first couple of chapters. If anyone has a hear, uh, an ear to hear, let him hear. This call for wisdom, this call for what we talked about earlier, to, uh, to be shaken, to, to respond rightly. And uh, there's this, this acknowledgement that if anyone's taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone's to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Um, here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So have an ear to hear. You just heard that. Uh, you, you just heard that you're going to face persecution. That Satan will have authority over these nations on earth, which are against the church, which are against God and His people. Uh, you just heard that even you might die, you might be taken captive, and then John says, "Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints." Well, for sure, you're captive the world right now. Yeah. We can't, we can't get citizenship is and we could be killed 
Yeah, and so uh, so this the citizenship will still be in heaven. The phrase the phrase if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Referencing back to the that refrain in the the message to the seven churches, um, Beale noted that the the reason this phrase was used is either to shock believers, getting them to respond in a certain way, or to sedate believers, causing them to further harden uh, themselves. And so after this symbolic vision, which tells readers about the authority of the beast that Christians will. Uh, and that Christians will be persecuted and killed, they are given this reminder so that they are shocked and motivated into persevering and enduring. This is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who are not true believers will be hardened by hearing of this future persecution and will worship uh, and will submit to the beast. So this is all a call in, in John's purpose to cause us to persevere, to cause us uh, to endure and to motivate us to be be faithful. That's uh, one of the statements of communists. The reason they don't like Christians much. I mean, true communist leaders that study all the writings and, and adopt that philosophy as a way of life. What are we to do with these people who have this faith that we can't? We kill them. That should make martyrs out of them. You know, making a martyr is the last thing somebody who wants to change people's mind wants to do. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, uh, for time's sake, we'll, we'll kind of quickly go through this uh, next section. But here we have now have another beast. I have one thing to say. Sorry. Yeah, go for but it, Joel. I love the drama of this scripture here. And it's so important to say, he who has ears, let him hear. But the reality is, out in the world, it's much more subtle. It's happening all the time, right now. Um, you can take gender issues and the pressure on... Christians and everyone to accept ways of doing things that are completely contrary to Scripture. You go on and on and on. It's so dramatic here, but that's why we need ears to hear because we don't want the mark of the beast. In other words, submitting to Satan's way of doing things. We want, you know, the mark of God. We want to submit ourselves to God's way of doing things. And that's why it's so important. It's not going to be as dramatic as this. It's not a singular event. It's a continuum ongoing, constant onslaught from Satan to uh, deceive people and to make our lives miserable and for, to put pressure against Christians, to have them conform to the world to be transformed by God. Well, so. as subtle as there was a police track star some years ago, she was interviewed by the press. She was an Olympic gold medalist and she gave all her glory, I mean literally in the, all her interviews, she, she gave all it's all God's doing, I just I'm just a vessel. And the press was, and they were obviously just laughing at her, you know. And uh, it was, it's that subtle. I mean, the people that were in the press, oh, isn't that sweet? She still believes like a little girl that God did it, you know. Well, uh, again, we'll quickly go through the last few verses of 13. So we have the, the second beast or the false prophet, which rises out of the earth, um, it exercises authority. Uh, on behalf of or in the presence of, you might have a footnote that says, um, or on behalf of. It's also the, the kind of intent of this phrase, that it's exercising authority on behalf of the, the first beast, another connection with the Son and the Spirit. We have the unholy uh, version here. Um, it's interesting, in verse 16, this is where we get into the mark of the beast that, that causes so much speculation amongst uh, interpreters and, and Christians. And so in verse 16... Um, all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, 
are marked on the right hand or the forehead. Um, and this is obviously unbelievers who are receiving this mark. And then verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. In verse 16, a mark on the hand or the forehead. Does anyone know the significance of the hand or the forehead? Yeah, and then what about the Old Testament, the Old Testament connection? Where the word, yeah, I mean, is it the sh- it's in the Shema. Shema. You shall they, they write wear, these, uh, write these words. And they have it on their- yeah, it goes through how you're going to keep God's commands and, and write His words, and you are to keep them uh, as uh, as symbol, as a as a sign on your on your hand and upon your between your eyes or on your forehead. Um, and so, really, this is kind of the anti-Shema. Rather than that, stood for your. Uh, being God's people and keeping God's commands here, this is uh, just the, the opposite of that, that you are, you are against God. And so verse 18, uh, the very controversial verse, uh, the number of the beast is 666. What does that, what does that mean? Just short of seven. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of times what people try and do is, so, so in, in Hebrew and Greek, uh, the letters of the alphabet, um, can stand for numbers, and you can communicate a number through through letters and uh, by names. Uh, Matthew, side note, does this in in his genealogy. Um, he this is a genealogy of of Jesus, the son of David. David's name in uh, Hebrew is uh, comes to the number fourteen, and that's why he then has fourteen generations, fourteen generations, fourteen generations. Um, here, though, then people say, well, maybe he's doing that here. So 666, whose name would equal that number? And some people try and say, oh, Nero Caesar. Um, I just find that extremely unconvincing because you're, this is written in Greek to people who spoke Greek. And you're taking and you're asking them to take a Latin, the, the Greek version of a Latin name and then turn it into Hebrew and calculate that number. Just doesn't really make sense. All the other times in Revelation, when John says something in Hebrew, he says in Hebrew, "It is this," or as we saw a couple chapters ago, uh, thrown into the abyss in Hebrew, it is uh, um, Abaddon. And so he 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 usually would say that. Um, and also to spell to spell Nero Caesar, you have to spell it um, wrong. And, and like you, you have to leave off kind of a letter. And so it, it just seems like that's kind of a stretch. And, and there's actually, I, I wanted to read this quote because here, here's what one person said when you're trying to calculate this. Um, he came up with some rules for, for trying to make any desired name because you can make any name you want equal this number essentially. So this is what this person said. First, if the proper name by itself will not yield it, will not uh, reach 66, add a title. (laughs) Secondly, if the sum cannot be found in Greek, try Hebrew or even Latin. Thirdly, do not be too particular about the spelling. We cannot infer much from the fact that a a key fits the lock if it is a lock in which almost any key will turn. So he's like, yeah, pretty much just do whatever it takes to to make your your, name fit. And I just don't think that's a good, uh, good method for doing that. Um, yeah, Gina, do you have yeah, a question? It's like you said earlier about <clears throat> the unholy trinity with the mm-hmm. dragon and the two beasts. It's the same thing. It's, it's uh, um, what I want to say. 
is a symbol for the trinity of evil. Exactly. I think that's I think that's exactly it. It's imperfect. Just yeah. Like when you're talking about because six, yeah, perfect is perfect would be seven. Right. Perfect. And so seven, seven, seven. And so now you you fall short. Triple imperfection. It may yeah. seem right. I think but that's it's not right. It's what's right in my own eyes opposed yeah. to what's uh, right yeah. in God's eyes. And I think I think that's really the really the, the key there. Uh, another thing is it's the number of a man. I think in contrast to the number of number of God, and it's not saying this is the number of a particular man, but it's this is a human number rather than a godly number. It's also interesting uh, to note that humans are created on the sixth day of creation, and so maybe there's a connection with uh, the beast. It has has authority over over humans. He tries to control humans. Um, the only other time the number six 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 is used in Scripture is in First Kings ten fourteen. Um, Solomon has 666, um, I think, uh, let's see, no, it's not concubines, it's, um, let's see, the, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents, um, and this is right before we get the account of the apostasy of Solomon, he falls away, he turns from the Lord, and this is really the beginning of his downfall, this is his wealth, um, so, whether or not there's a connection, I mean, it's, it, that would be the only place where that same number is used, um, and it's clearly not a good thing. And so I think the point here is, you know, it's all of every and every other number in Revelation is, is symbolic, so we shouldn't think this is, is a, necessarily a literal number, but it's, uh, it's clearly a bad, bad thing. Um, so we can at least see that. Um, any, any other comments there? Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm saying I, that I think it's, it's clearly symbolic for, as Jean was saying, this, the, the uh, one short of imperfection, the unholy trinity. I don't think it's an actual number of a person um, that's coming from their name. Um, it's, it's bad. It's clearly... Uh, Another way of saying aligned, uh, if you're not aligned with God, you're aligned with Satan. Those are the only two things. So if you're aligned with God... Whoa. You have his name on you. You're covered by him, by Jesus. You're aligned with Satan. You're aligned with Satan. That's representing with the 666. Doing what's right in your own eyes instead of doing what's right in God's eyes. If seven is perfection and repeating things three times like holy, 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 then six is imperfection and your 666 is more and more. It's like exactly way imperfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, can you just do a quick sidebar right quick and explain the hand and the forehead in reference to us as Christians? Because in Exodus? Uh, in, in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy. Yeah, God's people, um, they're, uh, it's oh, the... Oh, what it says. Oh. Yeah, yeah, hero Israel, Lord your God, Lord is one. And, six, um, seven. I thought it was a symbolic thing. Yeah, <laughs> well, and, and it, 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 does, it is symbolic because uh, on your head, it's all that you think. And your hand, it's all that you do. And so, um, so the, and the, the point in Deuteronomy is, in everything you think, and everything that you are, and in everything you do, uh, you are to hold to the commandments of the Lord. That's why uh, the famous verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Okay. Um, it's a reminder. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, 
Now in so contrast, it's a symbol then, even for yeah, in Deuteronomy, yeah. it's no different yeah. than the symbol now. Now in uh, chapter 14, there's this stark contrast of uh, those who stand with the Lamb, the 144,000, and they have the Lamb's name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. They have the, the number of, the, mm -hmm. of, of God. Uh, and we, we learned in chapter 7 that the 144,000, it's not a literal 144,000, especially just Jews, but that it's uh, standing for all believers, all uh, those who are in Christ, uh, all the people of God. And that is, is, again, emphasized in verse 3. No one can learn this song that is being sung except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And so uh, 144,000 are those who are redeemed. And that's more than just 144,000 Jewish people. It's all the people of God. Uh, verse 4 is a, 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 and 5 are they're a good example of, again, symbolism and imagery. So those who are redeemed from the earth are those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. And so is it saying that the only people who are in heaven are virgins? No, it's clearly not, not saying that. Um, the, this virginity or, or not defiling yourself is, uh, is spiritual. And this is a metaphor throughout the entire Old Testament of uh, faithfulness to God or infidelity. If you're unfaithful, um, they say Israel has played the whore. Israel has, been, um, has committed adultery. You see that in Hosea and Ezekiel. And so um, they have not uh, been unfaithful to God and defiled themselves with other gods. Uh, they are, are committed to God. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They've been redeemed from mankind, and uh, in, in their mouth was, was no lie was found. They are blameless, and um, that even having no lie in their, their mouth, um, in Isaiah 53, the Messiah, the, the servant of the Lord, uh, deceit was not found in his mouth in Isaiah 50, 53, 9, uh, Zephaniah 3.13 as well, and so they identify with, with God. They are not devoted to idols. They haven't and defiled themselves, and so these are God's people. Um, so, but, but yeah, Sherry, as you said, this is it's, it's awesome. This is, I mean, such a beautiful picture. We, we hear about this unholy Trinity and and the mark of the beast, and then then I looked and on Zion, um, in, in heaven, in in the dwelling place of God, there is God Himself and His people, um, and they're worshiping Him there. They're singing praise to him. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. The next, uh, next few verses, 6 through, through 13, there's three different angels, and they have different announcements. One has uh, proclaiming the gospel, calling people to repent. The second one uh, is declaring that fallen is Babylon. And again, Babylon, it's not just the actual literal Babylon, but it's all evil nations. And we'll, we'll really explore this in chapters 17 and 18 and, and what Babylon comes to stand for in uh, the Old Testament. And then also uh, it's used here, used here in the same way. Um, and then a third angel, which says, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, 
and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And um, there's this announcement of, announcement of this final judgment on all those who have the mark of the beast. And this is um, it's a very intense picture, the, the wine of God's wrath, the cup of his anger, it's the Old Testament image of God, the, the cup of God's wrath. And even Jesus, he's the one who drank the cup of God's wrath as he took our penalty for sin. But not for those who, uh, who are aligned with the beast. They will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the, in the presence of the Lamb forever and ever. No rest day or night. And it's important to, to note here, uh, verse 11, the smoke of their torment. Some people, and if you were here for Greg's sermon on hell uh, a couple of months ago, he countered kind of this view of what's called annihilationism, that people um, go to hell and they're punished and then they're kind of just destroyed and wiped out. And some people say, oh yeah, well there's smoke and they're kind of, they're destroyed. That clearly doesn't fit with, one, their torment, but then it, in verse 10, and it goes up forever and ever, no rest day and night. Um, there is no end to this torment. Another really important thing to note, and I think we miss this a lot, is uh, verse 10, this judgment, this torment in hell is taking place in the presence of the Lamb. Right. Well, it's parallel to our torment as a Christian. Anytime you think about the world or what's going on, you're tormented. Well, it's, but, it's right. uh, and, but here, right. um, the, this torment in the presence of the Lamb, yeah. we a real easy definition for hell that people give all the time. It's, it's, uh, separation. it's separation from God. Yeah. God isn't there. Um, I actually don't think that right. lines up with what the scripture teaches because hell isn't hell because God is absent. Hell is hell because God is there in the fullness of his wrath and anger. Um, he pours out the, 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 the wine of God's wrath full strength into the cup of his anger, in the presence of the Lamb. And even in 616, uh, earlier in Revelation, the people cower at the presence of God and they, they are afraid of the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is the one also executing this judgment. And so this, uh, the, the presence of God uh, in hell, in his judgment, I think it's, uh, it's important to note, and, and there's some truth to the statement, okay, it's separation from God, and that you're separated from true relationship and connection with God for eternity, but it's not like God is, is not there, and you do have a relationship with God, it's just not a good one, um, and it's one of, of judgment, because you did not believe in Messiah, um, and you think of John 3, uh, after John 3.16, further down in the, in the passage, that those who do not believe the wrath of God remains on them. And so... Um, it's just like that same picture of how we talk about sometimes um, like people accepting Jesus as Savior and Lord, like without just acknowledging like straight up, like He is, whether you're going to accept it or not, whether yeah. you're going to acknowledge and it. And so we, kind of, we, yeah, we have some of these same. kind of cliche definitions yeah. for things, and, and there can be some truth, but also... Um, be confusing. So, uh, so yeah, in verse, verse 12, a call for the endurance of the saints, another one, repeating this emphasis that we've seen throughout the book on, uh, on endurance, on persevering, on, uh, on being faithful to the end. Um, 
this, these verses, they're not written for unbelievers, but for believers. They're written so that when we think about the purpose of, of the book, they're to motivate perseverance and faithfulness. And so, again, we find this blessing as we find in the, the beginning of the book. Blessed are those who, who read aloud and who hear and who keep these words. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Um, blessed indeed. And so there's also this... Uh, this sense in which if you if you die in Christ that uh, death death is is some way pleasant because you are with with God um, and then the final final image we have in this chapter is of uh, the final uh, the final reaping of of the harvest of the earth uh, there's one like a son of man seated on a cloud clearly connected to Daniel seven uh, this is the Messiah. And he reaps the earth, puts, puts your sickle in, reap for the hour has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Um, makes a similar, Jesus tells a similar par- parallel, a parable rather, sorry, in um, Matthew 13. And so this, uh, this gathering is of those who belong to the Lord. It's the final gathering of all of God's people. In contrast now to uh, the final final vision of uh, the second reaping that gathers the, uh, the clusters of vine from the earth for its grapes are ripe. And this is a, a gathering of judgment, a gathering of unbelievers, and they're thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God, again connected with uh, the, the, um, the wine of the cup of the wine of God's wrath. Um, Isaiah 63 talks about the wine press of God's wrath, and Jesus is actually the one who will trample the wine press revelation 19 um, tells us and it's this this gory vivid imagery of uh, god judging his enemies by stamping on them like grapes and jesus's robe is covered in uh, grape juice in their blood um, the severity of the judgment here is it's uh, it's astounding and it's hard to swallow um, and yet we see the grace of God clearly and also his, his righteous judgment. Um, the, the wine press was trodden outside the city. The blood flowed from the wine press. It was um, it's like as high as a horse's bridle, and it flowed for uh, 1,600 stadia, which is about 200 miles, uh, this, this river of, of, uh, of blood. Um, this intense, we have this intense picture of the final judgment here. And so... These chapters, they, again, they continue the story that we, we, we start out with in, in Genesis 1. They show us the end of, of the battle with, uh, with this judgment and with salvation. And they also show us when, when Christ died, resurrected, and ascended, the, the victory this, this caused over Satan and uh, the change and shift that occurred. And so John is, is not all of these things were chronological and in actual order, but he's giving us a bunch of different images, a kind of a kaleidoscope of truths here. And so as we, as we put them all together, we, um, we have a greater understanding of who we are and what has happened and uh, where we stand now and what we can expect. And so there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of great truths in these chapters. Um, if we think, just, I know we've gone for a while. I don't want don't to keep you and if you have to go feel free um, but if we think just about the big picture of of these uh, these chapters 
we see that as a result of Christ's victory um, on the cross over the devil, God protect, uh, protects the messianic community, the church, against the, uh, the devil's harm. And so we have then believers who are, uh, who are exhorted to be discerning about falsehood. Uh, that's why it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. This calls for wisdom. They're exhorted to be wise about the falsehood that uh, is manifested in the beasts and in the dragon. They're not to participate in false worship propagated by the devil and by his worldly allies in order to, and they're, they're to hold their faith. And then chapter 14, God accomplishes his glory through rewarding believers and punishing the beast and his followers at the end of history. And so we have, uh, again, just a big picture, the victory of Christ, the, the protection and salvation of God's people who are called to, uh, to be faithful and to endure and to, uh, to continue to, to fight the good fight and hold on protection. to their faith. Yeah, it's a spiritual protection uh, they're to not submit and compromise, and God will be glorified in the end in, in salvation and judgment. And so it's kind of a big picture of, uh, of these chapters. I know, again, we went a bit long, but does anyone have anything that, I mean, after walking through this or reading it, that really encouraged them or stuck out, uh, stuck out or um, that they found to be really powerful? As we reflect on these these chapters, well, sir, me to rethink some of that thank was you for that. Discounted by people that I didn't know what I was talking about. Hmm. When I first started coming back to church around 2001, I was asking some people, did they think how many seals did they think were open? Because based on what I had read and what I observed and that was going on, still is going on all around all the time, I, I concluded that some of these seals got to be open already. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so no, no, that, that that's all in the future, yeah. and it's caused me to rethink some of the some of the stuff that I thought much earlier. Yeah, good. But just for me, the big thing here is like, oh my gosh, um, I can't be pure, but I really want to honor God, and I don't want anything to do with Satan and his ways, and I really want to align myself with God, and His truth, and His ways. It's like it's just I, such a contrast between the two. It's, it's, oh, I didn't know you were yeah, down. I'm yeah. sorry. But yeah, it's like you said earlier, that shock effect. Yeah. Um, it has me <laughs> rethinking a lot of things. And, and it's like, I, I know I'm a Christian, <laughs> but some of the stuff in here is like, I, I, I don't know. I, I, can't, I really can't put it into words. <laughs> Um, but it's mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. mind-blowing. Well, my greatest prayer is, even if I don't make it, God, use me to help somebody who will. You know, because I don't... Nobody wants to go through hell. I mean, I don't want to see anybody go through hell. Not the worst axe murderer, not Lizzie Borden, not, you know... None, no people... That's, that's not a fit place for people. You know? Yeah. So, if... if, if even if I don't make it, Lord, use me as a step stool for somebody who will, you know. That's always been my greatest prayer. Yeah, and, and what you, and I mean, even saying that and having that, that's like, that's that's good, uh, uh, showing that, no, you do have hear, ears to hear, because uh, the the point is that you would, uh, you would hear the message and 
be uh, be shocked and that you would uh, respond. And so that you know, if if people just read any part of God's word, but especially Revelation, and there's just no response, no, then it's evidence of their hardness of heart. Um, you know, the, the cleansing effect. <laughs> it's like you know, cleanse me, oh Lord. <laughs> Whoa, it's like yeah, it's it's like I said, it's a lot that. I, it's a lot of things that I struggle with, but I see my growth as well. And Revelation brings out some of the things that I still need to work on um, that I thought I did. Yeah. I have to put it like that. I thought, oh, I thought I could, you know, I thought I handled that. I thought I conquered this. And I know I'm struggling with this, but it's that the thing that comes to me is like you pray. I've heard you pray until you have a breakthrough. So. It's like, you know, you've been praying for this for so long, and it's like, it's almost you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's not quite, but it's, it's you're on the right path. Plus that endurance thing, we have to endure because of those things, right? Yes. We have to endure, but also we have to remember that the accuser has no basis anymore for accusing. Not yeah. because our behavior is become better, or not because our behavior is up to a certain level, I should say, or become perfect. But the accuser has no basis for accusing because right. we've been forgiven. And yes. you know, the blood of the Lamb covers us. So. I think for me that's a part that's like super encouraging just as I think about it. And they are just these like glorious epic pictures. It's just to know like, just to have confidence that there's, I mean, the... The going home to be with God forever, the living with him for all eternity is based only on Jesus and he's glorious and he's victorious and I can just, I can trust in that completely and I just know that when I look to all these other things and I think about, you know, all my own failures and weakness and struggle and all those things, but I could say like, no, it's, it's Jesus. It's going to yes. be all about Jesus. And this book shows me that he conquers. He is victorious. There's no question. So I don't have to wonder. And so I give him my life here for the rest of it, right? Exactly. There's two ways to get perseverance. Perseverance can be somebody beating you over the head to say uncle. And as long as you don't say uncle, you're, you're persevering. Um, perseverance can be as simple as somebody leaving a $5 bill on the table every day for your whole life. And you keep walking by that five dollar bill without picking it up. That's perseverance. <laughs> um, it can be that simple or that or that horrible, you know, depending on depending on what it is at, at the moment. And for certain people, walking by that five dollar bill every day is pure torment. Right. It's just <laughs>
dumbstruck some people in an earlier study I went through Revelation. So it's easy enough when it's just you. Yeah. You got a wife and kids, and you're watching your wife and kids starve to death because you won't take the number or won't do things against them. It's because you personally won't do anything against God, and you're going to sit and watch your family be tortured because of that. That's a pretty, I mean. But I don't think that's what it's saying, Kevin. I think it's saying, I think it showed us the contrast that said, if you're in Jesus, you're already marked and sealed with him. It right. isn't going to be about whether you decide you're going to take a number or not. Well, that yeah. number has already been given. Yeah. That number is it's given right. to those who are the enemies of God. It's not going to be about standing in a line and saying, am I going to take this mark or am I not going to yeah. take this mark? Well, you're people, already marked. Yeah. That but, chapter told us that. There are, there are people in other parts of the world right now who are having... Oh, yes. That, that sort of, they're, they're not taking a mark or a number, so to speak, but they're being forced they're to. Being persecuted. Being persecuted and forced to deny Christ or whatever. And they are watching their families suffer mm -hmm. and die. Suffer, yeah, yes. that's true. Yeah, and so it's not a matter of you know, standing, whether or not you're going to stand in line to get the mark, but whether or not you're going to, to, deny, to, Christ. to deny Christ or choose to, how are you going to choose to compromise? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think that. One of the things that stands out to me just in the whole book, and John is very this way in all of his writings, is he has this strict dualism between you know, light and darkness, truth and, and lie, uh, lies, life and death. Um, in Revelation, like it's, there's no middle ground. You either um, have the mark of, of the beast or the mark of, of, of Christ. You're either a follower of the lamb or a follower of uh, the dragon. And so there's there's no no option C, um, and that's that's something that, that stands out to me. So uh, and you have it. Now. I mean, it's now too. It's not just yeah. like a someday. It's now. Yeah. Yeah. The day you got saved, your eternal life began. Yeah. Who actually knows the day they got saved for you? Hmm. There's a good question, yeah. sister. All right. Well, we uh, we'll call it there because I feel bad we've been going so long. Um, Next week, we'll be covering chapters 15 and 16. Um, I didn't put up a slide with that, but 15 and 16, the seven bowls. Uh.